I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding and applying the wisdom of the Bible in your own context. In this season, The Problem of Good and Evil, we're digging into the topic of good and evil, finding new and maybe unexpected ways to think about it and respond to it. Let's get started. In the episodes of season two, The Problem of Good and Evil, we discuss some heavy topics and instances of evil that can be disturbing, especially for those who've experienced related trauma. We advise caution among listeners. If you find that you need help or support as a result of listening to this podcast, please consult the resources listed in the show notes. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again for episode six of Discover Your Roots. We are talking today about why does God do evil? And this is kind of something that we've been alluding to throughout the other episodes leading up to this. And we've been saying, we'll get to it soon. We'll get to it soon. We're going to talk more about this. And now we're finally here and we're going to talk about it. Um, So to start us off, I actually want to read Isaiah 31.2. And that says, and yet... He is wise and brings evil, talking about God. Um, He does not call back his words. So there's no sugarcoating it. This may be one of the most difficult questions we're going to discuss. Um, It's something that we wrestle with. We don't want to think about God as doing evil. We think about God as good and not capable of evil. Often we'll think, well, maybe he allows evil. Um, But we actually are going to talk about how God actually does evil. But hang on a minute. Don't be scared. We're going to kind of walk through this. Drew's going to take us through a journey of understanding this a little bit better. So can you kind of start us off by explaining why this question is so difficult in the first place and then why we don't need to be afraid of it? Yeah. um, I wonder if we should even change the phrase do evil. I mean, it's the only one we have here. Uh, Commits evil, I guess, but um, it it already like has a meaning to us. Like, Oh, he did evil to somebody. Well, I don't know. Do we ever use this in regular Mm. language? Like somebody did evil to somebody else. Like uses, uses evil or I don't know. Yeah. So we don't, in some ways we don't talk about evil in this way. So there's this disjunct between how the biblical authors are using the actual words to talk about God's relationship to these evil things. Um, But it is sometimes put in a direct God is the subject of a verb to do evil. Um, so I think the, the problem is because on the, on the surface of it is if we come with, if we just talk about an American culturally formed imagination about good and evil, uh, God is good, perfect, loving, and then evil can't have anything to do with good, perfect, and loving uh, creatures. Like even as humans, we don't think of somebody if they were good, you know, if we said, oh, she's perfect, she's good, she's loving, wise, just. We wouldn't then go on to add, and she does evil when, you know, when necessary. Um, so I think it's important to note to ourselves that this is a culturally, it's very difficult for us to reconcile. B, it's culturally difficult to reconcile, not biblically difficult. Difficult. So I think when, as we've already seen a bit, and we'll see a bit more here, when you see how the biblical authors are using this language and these concepts, you'll go, oh, I, th- I think most people walk away going. Oh, okay. That's that's actually not as bad as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and, and then you're probably thinking like, oh, this is all clickbait. Uh, indeed, this was clickbait. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to your clickbait edition. Well, you know, as as a marketer, I like to say, well, it's not clickbait if you deliver on the promise. So that's hopefully right. we'll that's deliver. Right. That's good. Yeah. 
And so I think, you know, a couple, when, when students are really upset about things they're reading in scripture, like that God orders the annihilation uh, of a particular city of people, right? Um, so when he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, when he floods the earth, um, we do have to hold that intention with the biblical authors are also describing the exact same God as wise, loving, just, this word chesed, which is like this loving kindness. It's a relational term. Uh, between family members, um, they they believe both things, and so you either have to say, "Look, these ancient Hebrews were idiots, or they just didn't see that you know you can't believe God is these things, but He also commits evils in some way," or they actually have a conceptual world where this all fits together, and uh, it's probably similar to our conceptual world. We just have to make sure we're all on the same page, um, and uh, I think. You know, if you're in a church tradition, which most of us are, that reads a lot more New Testament than Old Testament, you might not catch that the New Testament has the same view of God doing evil, uh, including Jesus doing evil. They just uh, are using different uh, using different terms to describe the same actions. Obviously, they're using Greek rather than Hebrew. Um, and there is a, what would you call it? There's a, a moth, the flame effect that... You know, Christians like this God is love um, and, you know, love is love. God, I mean, love is love is is aping off of God is love. And John's epistles, which I take to be wholly authoritative for the body of Christ, how we should look at each other. But this, that we abide in God and we abide in each other and that... um, it, so it's it's this very strong positive language, but I don't think for a second. I mean, but John is also the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, where Jesus is like, "I'm going to resurrect all of you, the wicked and the good, and I'm going to send some of you to the second death," um, or Revelation. Maybe maybe we've heard of that one, where Jesus is coming back after a time of tribulation, but there's going to be a massive judgment event, and and those who are prepared to enter the age of resurrection are going to come into the new heavens, new earth. Um, I think there's some ways in which that judgment would be described in the Old Testament as Jesus committing evil against the wicked, the, the condemned, if you want to put it that way. Um, there's just different, slightly different language in the New Testament. Hmm. That makes sense. So I think for a lot of people, and maybe for myself as well, <laughs> how do we reconcile God being love? Clearly God is love, and yet he still does evil? Like, how do we reconcile those two things? Um, One is just because somebody does something doesn't mean that it's part of their nature. Uh, And the same thing with you and me, just because I did something deceitful doesn't mean that I have a deceitful nature, right? Um, So like, it's not core to what Drew is, is a deceitful person. Even though I have deceived people, I've done all the normal things to, you know, I have a social media account, so I'm constantly deceiving people, <laughs> making my life look way better than it really is. Um, yeah, so I think the we have to maybe if I could shift the question and say, would we expect somebody that loves those who are around them and that and that actually has more authority and power than the people around them would ever do anything harmful in order to protect the weakest in that, right? And so I think when you look at the patterns, and we'll see it here because we're going to go through some of the text, you know, like proof in the pudding here, um, we're going to see that God actually is willing to commit violence when the vulnerable are um, being exploited. When the poor are being oppressed, he's willing to come in. And and notice when you get to the New Testament, Jesus, you know, he talks about the day of judgment He's going to separate out sheep from the goats, and he has these dividing lines. He's like, 
when I was poor, when I was sick, when I was in prison, you guys didn't do anything. And therefore, I'm going to say, get away from me. I'm conflating some passages mm-hmm. there, but they're referring to the same thing. Um, so even in the New Testament, it's how you treated the vulnerable seems to be some kind of a measuring stick for um, whether this violence, the second death, the judgment, whatever you're going to call it, that God's going to commit in, in the person of Jesus, whether that's going to be uh, inflicted by you. The Old Testament way to say this is, will you stand in the judgment? Will you be able to stand in the judgment? Uh, and Jesus uses this, will you um, will you survive into the age of resurrection and the, the second death being that judgment? Um, so all the language and concepts are still there in the New Testament, the New Covenant. It's all there. Um, it's just that the language is a little more veiled for our ears. Um, mm. Okay. So how does the Bible think about God's relationship to evil? Like, what are some practical examples? Like, as if, you know, just because God does evil, as you said, he's not necessarily— doesn't mean it's part of who he is as like an identity level. What what are some ways we can maybe kind of flesh out the relationship between God and evil practically? Um, so remembering that evil, ra, this word we've been calling evil constantly, can mean bad, unpleasant, distasteful, all the way up to wicked, uh, disastrous, calamitous, destruction. It has that wide, wide range of meaning. So maybe I can just read through some examples. and yeah, uh, And I'll just... Keep it as I'm going to use the word disaster. So, because the word evil triggers us, even me, I hear the word <laughs> evil and like it's so deep in our cultural psyche. Um, so, I'll use the word disaster instead, but just understand that the word is, is that's being used here is ra, the same word for evil, knowledge of good and evil that's used everywhere else. So, we already talked about Exodus 32, where he says, relent from this evil uh, that he had planned on bringing them, bring it upon them. Deuteronomy 32. Uh, is a warning. I will heap disasters, evil upon them. I will spend my arrow in case you were like, well, what kind of disaster? I will spend my arrows. In other words, I'm going to shoot every arrow I have in my bucket uh, at them. Uh, and this is, again, goes back to if Israel becomes the oppressor, if they move from the oppressed to the oppressor, uh, he will do that. First Kings 9, um, They will say, because they abandoned Yahweh, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold to other gods and worshiped them and slaved to them, therefore Yahweh has brought all this disaster, this evil upon them. And that that disaster will look different in different times in Israel's history, but it's all calamity, destruction of cities, destruction of people, taken away into exile. Uh, 1 Kings 21, behold, I will bring this disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut you uh, cut off. Sorry, cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. So these again are God as the subject of the verb. Uh, if we keep on plowing, First Kings twenty one. We just had that. Oh, this is also God relenting from disaster. This is interesting because you get both sides of the coin here. He says, have you seen how King Ahab has humbled himself before me? And because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster, this evil upon his house. So it's interesting that Ahab sees what he's done. He understands fully like, oh, wow, I have messed up. And the creator is actually going to come bring the hammer down, the evil down upon me, humbles himself. And God's like, okay, I'll defer it for one generation. To which Ahab is like, okay, oh, good. My son's going to get it, not me. Sounds like Hezekiah. Well, at least I'll be fine in my yeah, day. Yeah, I mean. Don't worry about it then. Exactly. I mean, it's, it, yeah, there's some insanity going on here. 
uh, I'm, I'm skipping a lot here, but just to give you a taste of um, 2 Kings 22, thus says Yahweh, behold, I will bring disaster, evil upon this place and upon its inhabitants and all the words of the book that King Judah has, uh, the king of Judah has read. Uh, let's see. Let's keep going. Oh, Nehemiah. Um, so at the very end of Nehemiah, so this is the very end of the history of Israel and the land after the exile. Uh, where he warns um, the people who are worshiping other gods and doing all of these things that they're not supposed to be doing and breaking the Sabbath. He says in Nehemiah 13, 18, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster, this evil upon us and this city, Jerusalem? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath, right? So they're, they're bringing in fish and stuff to the markets on the Sabbath. So he closes the gates and he warns them. And it's interesting because, you know, you say, well, what is this disaster? He's talking about hundreds of years of calamity against Israel in the north and Judah in the south and eventually Jerusalem itself. And he says, and he says this in Nehemiah 5 as well, didn't our fathers act in this way? And didn't God punish us with all of these evils? Um, so Isaiah 31, uh, yet he is wise and he brings evil. He does not call back his words again, but he will rise against, now here we go. He will rise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity or wickedness. So now we get this direct relationship that, that we've seen before, but it's stated very openly. Um, his evil is going to be brewed up and brought down upon people who are basically uh, acting corruptly. And by corrupt... We might get caught up in thinking, oh, they're worshiping the wrong God, but actually he's really talking about worship of other gods leads to exploitation of vulnerable people, mm -hmm. uh, which is still true to this day, I would say. Uh, Jeremiah six nineteen. listen, O earth, behold, I am bringing evil, disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my Torah, they have rejected it. Jeremiah eleven eleven. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am bringing disaster, evil upon them from which they cannot escape. Though they cry out to me, I will not listen. So this is a long trope. If they cry out to me, I've heard them. And he's saying, no longer. I'm going to bring this disaster. Even if they cry out, I won't listen. And then verse 17 of chapter 11 of Jeremiah, Yahweh of hosts who planted you, you Israel and, uh, you Israel in Israel, has decreed evil against you because the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. So again, notice it's evil for evil. Because you did evil, I'm going to bring evil down upon you. And I think uh, Amos 3.6, I referenced it last episode, um, where he makes kind of a Hannah-like, if you know Hannah in 1 Samuel, she makes this prayer where she kind of lays out the logic of how God works. You know, the weak things are going to be raised up and made strong. Strong things are going to be torn down. Um, and so he makes this kind of causal relationship. Is a trumpet blown in the city and people are not afraid of it? Does evil or disaster come upon a city unless Yahweh has decreed it? And you might be thinking, oh, what cities? Well, there he's talking about the cities of Israel and the cities of uh, Judah as well. So it's making this very direct relationship with none of these cities aren't brought down by natural disaster. These are not, even if it's an earthquake, it's not a natural disaster. It's not an ad, a, uh, accident. The prophet is saying, I am interpreting to you all of this bad stuff that has happened, all of this bad stuff that will happen is because Yahweh has brought this evil or is planning to bring this evil upon you. Okay, so that's the scary part that you should be afraid of. But remember, we have beginning with Pharaoh and beyond. If someone were just like even Ahab, I mean, think about how horrible Ahab really was in the big picture. He like he acquiesced to Jezebel, and he's a weak, you know, spineless guy. 
But even he, he humbled himself and deferred disaster, right? How much more so if somebody really like humble themselves, change their ways, committed their ways, like Zacchaeus, right? Who not only humbles himself and realizes that judgment has come upon him, but then goes out to make it right, takes all the money that he has skimmed off the population and returned it multiple fold, right? Um, so there's this constant drumbeat of people like, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and when you, by the time you get to Jeremiah, he's like, don't pray for these people. We're, like it's Dunskis. They have pushed it to the, the point where there's no return. This is going to happen. And now we're going to talk about what happens when they come back from exile. So you see here, and, I, and again, I'm, I've only read about a third of the passages I pulled up just in this use of disaster where God is the subject of the verb to bring disaster. Um, this is a regular way of talking about God. This is not one off. It's not like uh, this weird, you know, three passages that we have to deal with that we're embarrassed about. Um, it's a very common way of talking about God. Uh, and again, you say, like, it's actually not interesting that God does evil for the biblical authors. What's interesting to them is why does he do it? On For whose sake? It's never for his own sake. It's not so that I can get the glory because I am God and you guys aren't, you guys aren't owning up to him. You know, like you're not showing me the proper respect, right? (laughs) That would be a very ancient Near Eastern God way to do things. Like you're not taking care of me. You're not feeding me. You're not working my fields. You've offended me. Yeah. You've offended me by doing what? I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to sit over here mad and Mm. bring disasters upon you, right? So God, when he brings disasters, it's because... Uh, they're not keeping Sabbath. But remember, Sabbath is like the indicator. If you're not doing that, you'll end up eventually worshiping other gods, which means you might kill your children to those other gods. You will absolutely exploit, prostitute your daughters, exploit the poor, oppress uh, oppress the vulnerable. Like it's just a slippery slope that they think is an obvious thing. So they're trying to catch it up here. Like, hey, 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 let's keep the Sabbath because that regularly reminds us whose people we are, who we should be afraid of, who provides for us who loves us, who speaks to us, who, what other kind of God has, what other people has a God so near to them? This is Deuteronomy 30, that he's provided us this instruction. Um, it really is like reaching out in love, trying to avoid the disaster, but God will commit these evils for the sake of all the families of the earth and for the people he's kind of looking over the horizon going, okay, we're done here, but I still have people out there that, um, that you are meant to, uh, to be this kind of people to reach out to. Mm-hmm. So in some ways... His disaster is a weird, weird love letter to the world, if wow. I can use Christianese. <laughs> it reminds me, and I'm currently in seminary right now, one of the things that we had talked about. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is my bread and butter. I'm like, yeah. I'm learning a ton here. Um, so one of the things that we had talked about recently was how um, the prophets will look back to like the wilderness period, the book of Numbers, like in in kind of a fond lens oh, yeah. because they look back at a time when people so quickly repented. It's like God would punish them and then they would immediately repent. So almost like, as you mentioned, you know, the God using evil is almost a kind of love letter to like protect and, and keep the people on the right track. Um, it's interesting that often like we look at the book of Numbers and like, wow, God's pretty harsh there. But the prophets will then look at Numbers and think, man, if it was only like that again, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean that you know, like everything, um, we you know we say we're you know, if you know any mature Christians, people that you actually respect, and you think okay, they're deeply mature. It's not uh, thin and surface with them. Um, and you just ask them, when did you grow most in your understanding of God? 
I don't think there's going to be a person who's going to say like, you know, when everything was just going swimmingly, when everything was <laughs> tov, right? Tov me'od. Um, it really is when things unravel, when calamities mm-hmm. come, right? Um, and so there's a sense in which disaster is typically for the sake of the week, but you also have disaster that reveals like where you are and what, and what you trust. I mean, I would say in some ways that the Akedah, the binding of where God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love to the place I will show you. That's a disaster. I mean, it's not technically labeled that, but that's calamitous for Abram or Abraham at that point. Um, but it's stated and God sought to test Abraham saying, take your son, your only son. So there's a sense in which, um, Disaster is part of the greater vocabulary and conceptual world and experiences of learning how to be God's people. Um, And so, I mean, there's a way in which you could narrate the wilderness as a long trauma. I mean, can you imagine if it were today, there would be kids coming out of there being like, let me tell you about my traumatic childhood in the wilderness and how my parents oppressed me religiously and made me me eat all of their stupid bread every day. And I mean, there's a way to re-narrate. I mean, and you see that in Exodus and Numbers when they're like, Oh, remember back in Egypt when we had leeks and onions and sat by our meat pots and ate bread to the full? And you're like, wait, what do you, that was not an exodus. Like, what? I mean, there's a genuine question, like, is this a false memory? Is that what's uh-huh. going on here? Is it romantic memory? Um, yeah. So I think when we think about God doing evil, put it in that larger of testing, trying, allowing, kind of Joe, Joe being the most extreme version of that. Ecclesiastes being a long poetic waxing on like, yeah, it rains on the righteous and the wicked alike. And we don't get to see behind the curtain. We don't get into the logic of the entire cosmos. So sometimes it's just eat, drink, work, uh, serve Yahweh and keep his instruction. Um, and that's, that's the safe way through. It's interesting. So we talked about how God will do evil for his own purposes, whenever it gets to a point where it's like, okay, like this is the tipping point. So what would you say, how would you describe the tipping point? What is it that God, and we've talked about this a little bit whenever it comes to like defense of of the oppressed and justice, but what is it specifically that is like the tipping point for God to say, okay, you've reached a point with me where like the, the point of no return whenever it comes to disaster. Um, I have a partial answer for this. I'm like, ooh, ooh, I actually know this one. <laughs> um, for the first time, episode six. The, um, I mean, one of the things that actually happens in the text that is a is a thing. We're not we're not projecting or looking into it. it's the oppressed cry out to God. Like uh, that's the promise. The, the, when uh, in Egypt, it's when they cry out to them to Yahweh. He saw their oppression. He he heard their voices, saw their oppression, and he knew. Um, and at the end, again, like I said in the last episode, Exodus 22 is, in the days to come, if you mistreat the foreigner, if you mistreat the widow or the orphan, and they cry out, and, it's, and they cry out to me. That's always added on there. They, so there's a sense where it's actually the oppressed job in this role. I mean, it's, I, I don't know if this is stated anywhere in the, in the covenant treaty, uh, but like you have to cry out to God and say, and demand justice. And uh, the terrifying part of that is not just the violence and, and disaster and evil and calamity that God is willing to bring, um, but that he's, that he's gonna hear their cry and he's gonna see what you've been doing. Uh, again, that you don't, get to hide, you don't get to hide your actions. Um, and when he sees what you're doing, he's going to judge it. Now, 
the the reality. Okay, so if we want to talk about why does God um, kill entire cities of people like Jericho or Sodom? I mean, there is an, another version of that question that if we lived in one of those cities and we were one of those vulnerable people, if we are Rahab, for instance, a, a vulnerable person in that city, we might turn around, turn the question around and say, why did God let this go on for hundreds of years? I mean, Abram went through that land and he looked around and he's like, ugh, you know? And, um, and God says, nope, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, which we take to mean like it's bad, but it's, it's going to come to a point of fullness. And when it does, I'm going to come in and judge these people, I'm gonna, which, you know, just replace out and he did evil to them, right? Um, and notice there too, if uh, God is going to, is planning to commit evil against, that's not the language that's used in the text. The text is very like matter of fact, this is what it just describes. But even then, Rahab recognizes who God is uh, and says, like, I'm with you guys, right? And she attaches herself to them. And, and the effect of that is anybody who comes into her house is then saved from certain judgment. So kind of like the ark, anybody who enters the ark is saved from certain judgment. Her house becomes like an ark, just like the houses of Israel that had uh, blood over the doorways in the Passover become houses of refuge from certain judgment. The judgment is coming, just like Lot's house becomes uh, a house of refuge for the messengers from certain judgment that's coming. So uh, it's, I think in the big picture, the, the part of the imagination we haven't talked about yet is I don't think most of us can imagine how bad the biblical, like how bad the, the world is for the people the biblical authors are describing. Um, we think like, oh, they're not, they don't have lattes anymore at their Starbucks or whatever. Like, like what's, what exactly is the problem? And I think when you enter the ancient Near East and you kind of see how things work, you realize, oh, this is like a horribly, not just corrupt government, but this is um, sexually, slave-wise, beatings, robbery, all the way up and through the down, nobody is safe. So it's it's all Sodom and Gomorrah all day and all night in these cities. So that anybody who just comes to stay the night for refuge at the night, for the very point of refuge, it might be the case the entire town rises up to come rape them publicly. Like, um, And I think they're asking us to imagine if that's the case for a man coming into stay in the town, probably the people who live there, nobody's safe either. They're not safe from each other. The women, like, can you imagine, like, all the men in the town gather to rape a stranger who came into the town that night? But the women and children are doing great otherwise, right? Like, it, it just implies how it's it, it's asking you to imagine how much worse it must be for the people mm -hmm. who were there, right? Um, and for most of us, we just never experienced the world like that. Um, there are many people, there are brothers and sisters, uh, Christians around the world who have experienced that level of corruption, violence, abuse, um, who could probably help us understand this better. Mm. Do you think God ever brings evil to show mercy in that way of, you know, whenever things get to that breaking point, could there be mercy in disaster? Um, I, this is like, I feel like Paul at this point, strictly my opinion. <laughs> Um, because I realized there could, someone could correct me and I would go, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense. Um, but when I think about this question, which I've thought about this question a lot, um, I use the example of Raqqa in, uh, Syria, which, uh, about 10 years ago, ISIS had taken over Raqqa. I don't remember if we talked about this in last season or not. Okay. So, um, ISIS, you know, when they were at their worst, um, 
took over this entire t- Syrian city and f- forced their version of Wahhabist Sharia law. It was horrible. They were throwing homosexuals off of buildings. They were executing people publicly. They were throwing anybody who uh, wasn't keeping religious standards. They were killing people on the streets. They were openly had a sex slave market of women. So they were just like openly selling women as sex slaves. Um, and the question kind of came down. I had a friend who was working in the State Department at the time. She worked with like the deputy director of counterterrorism. And the question was floating around. Like, what if we can't, like, we can't invade Raqqa. America didn't have the, you know, the, the, what do you call it, the will to invade that entire, and it would have been thousands and thousands of American casualties. So there was no will to invade Raqqa. So we're just going to sit here and let that happen. And so there are, there are actual questions. This happened with Auschwitz, with the, the World Jewish Congress. And like, is it more humane just to bomb the camps? Um, I mean, that was an actual working solution that was proposed by many Jewish leaders. Like, it would be more like, okay, bomb the railways. Well, we can't bomb the railways or they repair them. Some people said it might be more humane. It might show mer- more mercy just to bomb the entire camp because the atrocities that are going on there, it'd be better for it just for everybody to die than for the, tr- the atrocities to continue, especially when the allies found out how bad it was. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm not saying that was right or wrong. I'm just saying the fact that they were having these discussions. Same thing in Raqqa. Like, a legitimate question, and I don't have any answers to it, Like, but would it be more humane to drop one nuclear bomb? Again, I'm not suggesting anything here, but like drop to end everything for everybody rather than to let that go on for 20 years. Now, thank God Raqqa did get liberated uh, eventually, but it was years later. And there was a, I imagine there's society-wide traumas that are still persistent and will be for decades in that community. And so... You do wonder if it does make you wonder from God's perspective, if his evil understands that the vulnerable might get caught up in the the vulnerable already caught up in the gears of corruption and violence being done by humans, um, that there are necessarily caught up in God's judgment as well. And this may be a merciful. I mean, I I don't know. That's about as far as my imagination uh, can go. And it makes me think. Uh, a, I, this is Ecclesiastes. I don't, I don't even understand how the breath comes into the baby in a woman's womb or how a seed grows out of the ground. So I'm not going to even pretend to understand all of this. Um, but I think the more we know about the atrocities that humans actually do to each other, and I think uh, World War II and um, Hitler and the final solution became like a really vivid example for my grandparents and my parents. I think I, I meet lots of people that don't, actually even understand um, concentration camp. Like, they don't even know about them. They've heard it. They knew Hitler was bad, right? But there are lots of people in high school and college, they don't really know exactly what was so bad. They just know it was bad, right? So as that memory fades, I think we really need to explore and learn more about these atrocities from survivors and get their perspective to help us as Christians uh, think through what we're seeing depicted in Scripture. Sorry, that was really heavy, but I mean, the topic is heavy, yeah, and yeah, that was all a... like my opinion so far, mm. and um, and I definitely would welcome any feedback. But it's 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 difficult not to think that the same realities of atrocity today would have existed uh, back then in these cities that mm-hmm. are being described. Yeah, yeah, no, this is this definitely important conversation. Also, to any of you who may be listening, who maybe the conversations that we've had so far in this episode and even previous episodes. Um, maybe has brought up some things for you that is hard to to deal with. Maybe you even have some some past trauma yourself that this kind of uh, brings up for you. Really encourage you to take whatever 
necessary steps to keep your own uh, to keep yourself safe mentally and and emotionally, we totally understand. It's definitely hard things to talk about and um, not and easy bring people for in to help you, as right? Well. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. We have to do these things in community. Yes, absolutely. So thank you so much for sharing um, sharing a little bit about this. It's definitely, <clears throat> I think, a topic that you know we don't like to think about God doing evil, especially as like it relates to our own lives. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for society? I think the the big question that so many of us wrestle with <laughs> is like, why, why is there a good God and then evil in the world? Like, how do we reconcile those things? And then especially it gets even closer to home whenever we ask, why is there a good God who actually uses evil and does evil? So, yeah, I think if I can give one last example, please. cause it was, it was help. It helped me tremendously to understand. Um, I think we have to admit in the West, because people who've uh, survived, you know, I had PTSD for my time in the military, very light PTSD, lots of sexual trauma in my family. Like, this this is a a lot of people have these issues in their lives. I think a lot more than we know. I mean, you know, the stats, I'm not even sure how accurate they are. But so a lot of people have suffered their own personal traumas. But if you're in the West, and this is not to demean my experience or experience anybody else's, but if you're in the West, Violence and trauma of that kind, those kinds of evils are intrusions into an, uh, an otherwise normal life, right? And we see them as intrusion. Even for combat soldiers, we say, I went over, I served, I didn't, you know, saw some really bad stuff, did some really bad stuff, but now I'm back in safety. Um, so I think we have trouble actually theologically negotiating this part of the, the scriptures where God is bringing evil on people for the sake of his justice and mercy and, and his love for humanity and creation. Um, so for me, I've been turning to people who have actually experienced something like what's going on in scripture. So Jacob Onyumbi is a is an Old Testament scholar in the Congo, and he was a child soldier, um, like so recruited in against his will. Um, he also ended up doing his PhD on the book of Nahum and uh, Nahum, if you if you know Nahum the prophet, literally the name means comfort, right, comforter. But you read Nahum and it's all about like a horrible um, attack on a city. You're you're reading about he thinks it's the attack on Lachish uh, in Israel, and it, I mean it's you know it's like a horrific. I mean it's a traumatizing event, and the and the prophet is basically just describing the trauma in detail. So a lot of biblical scholars, especially Western biblical scholars, are squeamish going like, why? they're kind of embarrassed by Nahum, kind of going, why do we have this in the text? This is this doesn't really do anything. As a Congolese war atrocity survivor, uh, he's like, well, let me explain to you why the church in the Congo actually reads Nahum and celebrates, and it comforts them deeply. And he interviewed like 100 atrocity survivors in the worst. I, it, Piles of Slain, Heaps of Body is the name of his book. It's a, it's a reference. It's a quote from Nahum. Um, it's, uh, I can't recommend it to everybody because it might be too, some people might be too sensitive from their own traumas or their own issues. But if, if you want to get a sense of what uh, people have experienced in real wartime traumas where there's no government, every group of people that walks into your village might be the people who will chop off body parts. Uh, rape all the women in front of you, in front of the men who belong to them, and then murder the men and take people as slaves. I mean, it's it's the worst of the worst. And then he puts that side by side with Nehum, and he says, like, now let me show you why we now hear these words as comfort. So for for you and me, we're just like, please tell me because I can't see any way in which this would be comforting. And he actually walks step by step and and shows you um, from 
psychological and sociological in his own experience, this data uh, showing you why this is actually kind of a needed thing for people who have survived community-wide violence, not just the intrusion of violence, but that community-wide where there is no help, there is no government. You literally only have God. Um, and God is not stepping in at that moment to stop it, which is what Nehum is describing. So, so I think basically it's not that's not to solve any problems that's to say there is much more out there our sisters and brothers around the world actually have something to teach us and i would just say let's put a pin in thinking that we're going to figure it out when we don't actually have personal experience with a lot of things being described in scripture mm. and use the body of christ around the world so that we can learn what we might be needing to see that we're blind to right mm. now i love that addressing the topic with humility knowing that our own experiences can't can't describe fully what's going yeah, yeah. that's good you know i think this this side of the conversation, I think, leads really well into what we're going to be talking about next episode, which is, is suffering evil? So we'll be talking about, I mean, again, the atrocities like that are hard for hard for me to imagine because I haven't had to live through anything like mm. that, thankfully. But, you know, it also means that I have a limited capacity of my ability to understand and, and relate. So I think it's um, it's going to be helpful for us to talk about the evils of suffering and, and where, where is God in that? I think you raise an important question of that even Nahum addresses of where is, like, how do we, how do we see God in suffering? Um, how do we understand the evil of suffering? So, um, will be a good episode. Thank you so much for being here, Drew. Uh, and we look forward to seeing everybody else next episode. Thanks for listening to season two of Discover Your Roots, The Problem of Good and Evil. To find more resources like this, subscribe to our newsletter at passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, that's passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media and learn more about Israel and the Bible at Passages Israel. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.